Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. This message comes from our sponsor, Clarios. Did you know that every hybrid and electric vehicle needs a low voltage and a high voltage battery? While your car battery may not be the first thing on your mind, it's always in the minds of the people at Clarios who just introduced their new XEV low voltage batteries specifically for EVs and hybrids. Clarios XEV is the perfect partner to the high voltage battery to help ensure constant power and crucial safety functionality so you can drive in comfort and confidence. Learn more at Clarios.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Let me briefly explain what it is we're talking about when we use the term cognitive science of religion. What that is, is when theologians, philosophers, psychologists, whomever, take findings from cognitive science and apply them to religion. Now, cognitive science is different than neuroscience. Neuroscience looks at the brain itself, the physical organ inside our skulls. Cognitive science looks at the mind thoughts, mental states, 
and consciousness itself. Does that distinction make sense? Our mind certainly arises from our brain. Without a brain, we would not have a mind. But the best way to understand our mind is not merely to look at neurons firing in our brain. You can learn a whole lot about the mind without ever peering inside a brain. For instance, an IQ test is a measure of one aspect of someone's mind, and IQ tests can be delivered, taken, and scored without ever consulting a neurologist. Now, there does also exist neurological science of religion. That is its own field. We're not talking about that today. What we're talking about today is the kind of stuff that people like my guest, Myron Penner, are interested in, how we think about religious experience, behaviors, and beliefs, given what we are learning through cognitive science. Now, to be honest, perfectly honest, today's episode is a tougher one, and I mean that in a couple different ways. Number one, it is more technical than some episodes, but it's not incredibly technical, and I think people should be able to follow along. But more so, number two, it was actually a challenging conversation for me from a faith perspective. This field of study, cognitive science of religion, has some genuine issues for me personally to work through uh, as I seek to understand my faith, my brain, my mind more fully. At one point later on in the discussion, I mentioned this difficulty, and Myron responds with something I've been kind of thinking about ever since. Maybe it doesn't weaken our faith to think through all of this complicated stuff. Maybe it opens up more interesting ways to be Christian. I definitely think he's on to something there, uh, and his faith, I know, on a personal level, is quite strong. And so, for now, I'm going to use him as an avatar <laughs> to not worry about uh, the weakening of my own faith um, as I tackle these difficult questions. Uh, last thing to say, this interview was made possible as part of the Theopsych Project, hosted by Fuller Seminary's Office of Science, Theology, and Religion. We did this interview at the end of that time, that two-week seminar, after Myron and I really became friends. Um, the same goes for Sarah Lane Ritchie from the Psychedelics episode and next month's patron-exclusive episode guest, Evan Rosa. So I am especially grateful for being brought together with all these awesome people back in July. Okay, I'll leave it there. Let's get into it. So, Myron, let's start with your religious background. How would you describe it? Sure. Well, I grew up in a kind of highly Mennonite part of Canada, and so I have uh, ethnic kind of Mennonite background, and that's this kind of interesting and weird kind of ethno-religious group where uh, you've got a mix of, in my case, kind of German-Russian heritage, as well as a particular kind of understanding of Christian faith through kind of this peace church tradition. And I grew up in a relatively, I'd, I'd say, culturally Christian in that kind of vein, home, nominally Christian in terms of what that meant. And I kind of didn't want any part of it. But for me, I kind of look at my own faith journey. I mean, surely all that kind of background is relevant in kind of how you process things at every stage of your life. But for me, I think of my faith journey as happening late teens, early 20s, when I had started thinking about faith in a different way and, and really 
how my kind of Christian journey is starting there. And then through uh, college and grad school and on to do a PhD in philosophy, for me, thinking through faith, I wasn't one of these who really kind of needed to get into academia so I could kind of sort it all out and kind of prove it all to be true. It seemed interesting to me, and I would probably say comforting to me as a relatively fairly new in my faith journey, and even throughout the years as I've come through it, it's always been interesting and I would say probably intellectually and personally comforting to me to know that when you do get down to these really thorny problems within the Christian tradition, there have been a a range of perspectives on how to navigate those issues. And that if you're willing to look, there's generally some informed, thoughtful Christian voice kind of speaking into that. And that for me has always been good, even if I'm not able to kind of figure things out to a high degree or have a high degree of certainty on any particular issue. So that's the approach that I've had in my faith, probably right from the start. And I think maybe if that's a function and part of becoming a Christian, if you want to use that language uh, as an adult, you know, some of the pressure was turned off, I think, on some of those culture war kind of things, which have never really, I've never really been super drawn towards. Yeah, it's interesting. Your story is almost like if someone could internalize the purpose of this podcast before they went through the process, then they might end up like you did, as opposed to having to internalize this show after being given something and then having problems with it. That's why my podcast is called The Finished Product. (laughs) (laughs) Totally not true. (laughs) How would you describe your faith today? Like what kind of church do you go to or anything like that? Yeah, so... <clears throat> I go to uh, a Mennonite Brethren Church. Uh, I live in Abbotsford in British Columbia, Canada. So it's a highly churched area, lots of church options, especially relative to the Canadian context. And we participate in community life in that way. I do see theologically, you know, as I've been exploring the tradition from which I come, this peace church tradition out of the Radical Reformation, Anabaptist kind of sensibilities about social justice and really trying to live a life of peace and figure out what that means in today's context as opposed to 16th century. I mean, there's lots there that has been meaningful for me. One of the things I do is, as part of my job at, at uh, Trinity Western is I direct an Anabaptist Mennonite Center, the Humanitas Anabaptist Mennonite Center, and we do projects that are trying to continue to explore what it means to understand, articulate, and live out this Peace Church perspective today. And that's becoming increasingly important to me as I kind of make my way through my career. How did you become interested in the cognitive science of religion? You're not a scientist, you're not a cognitive scientist or a cognitive psychologist, you're a philosopher. What got you there? Yeah, so my areas of specialization in philosophy are epistemology and philosophy of religion. And for me... Epistemology uh, is theory of knowledge. Yeah, understanding yeah. kind of our knowledge claims, the the way in which we think through concepts, related concepts like rationality and evidence and just the overall kind of plausibility of belief. And it's very natural in philosophy of religion to gravitate towards questions about the reasonableness or rationality or support of religious claims. And so that invariably brings you into science. I see, like many others, kind of natural science and then later social sciences is really growing out of kind of a philosophical tradition and the philosopher's kind of quest just to figure out, well, why should we think that certain things are true? And even the scientific method in some ways is a very precise empirical application of a larger kind of philosophical method of just looking for evidence, looking for reasons, trying to make things coherent and explanatory. And so for me, part of my own kind of research interests, but also courses that I teach, I teach courses in philosophy of religion as part of my 
teaching load, which I really enjoy, including a course called Reason and Belief in God and another one called Suffering and Belief in God. And both of those courses in different ways require you to think through how it could all fit together if this world is supposed to be created and managed and superintended by a a mighty God who is all-powerful and all-knowing. And as we started to get more data from cognitive science of religion filtering through into not just academic context, but in popular context, too, where you would just see the data that's emerging out of the science being used in all sorts of ways to assume that we've explained religion away, or we've got this really robust kind of naturalistic account of religious belief. Like, how should people process that? What what implications does that have for thinking through what our faith is and what yeah. religious belief in general is, right? Yeah, and we're going to get more specifically to that concern. But first, we should sort of understand what it is. I was chatting with you about it before we recorded this, and here's how I understand it. It's a way of explaining religion or religious experience in natural terms, which is science does. It's natural. It's a new form of it because cognitive psychology is fairly new. And what's different about cognitive science of religion as opposed to other ways of describing religion in natural terms, like Marx tried to describe it in natural terms by saying it's a crutch or whatever. You know, people need this crutch for some reason. This is really supported by empirical data and methods, right? And is really kind of a part of what we might call the cognitive revolution going on in... Did you just come up with that? No, you told me that (laughs) in our chat. So don't give me credit. Cognitive revolution. I like that term. I might have got that from Justin Barrett in one of the uh, sessions at this seminar. But so can you fill in whatever I got wrong or incomplete there? Yeah, I think in some ways, and maybe this might kind of orient the discussion for your listeners. If you ask someone in a for lack of a better word, kind of mainstream evangelical church experience. And you ask, why do you believe in God, right? And often kind of a a standard response is to say, well, I grew up in a Christian home and went to a youth group or a youth retreat or had this experience where it just really seemed that God was showing me that I really needed God in my life and I needed to accept Jesus. I needed to ask for forgiveness of my sin and the Holy Spirit was just working in me and I gave my life to Christ. And since then, you know, God has been teaching me things and learning things in this kind of standard kind of relational language, right? And so the story that's told about why a person believes is strongly God is an actor in that story. God is doing things. And now a different way of telling that story about why a person comes to believe is to say, well, why does Billy believe in God? And from a cognitive perspective, a cognitive scientist might say, well, Billy has a a mind that's assemblage of mental tools. And part of the tools in Billy's toolbox are cognitive processes that help determine agency in the world, are focused on attributing purpose and design to certain things. As a human being, Billy has this highly evolved capacity to attribute mental states to other people and to read social situations. And so each of these tools in Billy's toolkit is something that we can kind of put in an evolutionary backstory and say, you know, that tool has adaptive value in this particular context, and that tool has adaptive value for that particular context, and it helps Billy be part of a species that survives and reproduces. And so then when you have this particular assemblage of mental tools in one kind of toolbox, it makes it very natural in certain contexts to think, oh, there's a God behind things, there's a God doing things, or there's a God who's angry with me. And so 
on the cognitive science perspective, uh, you can tell a very interesting, very empirically, reasonably well-supported story about how it is that Billy came to believe in God, in which God's not an actor at all, right? So that's kind of the main, or not main way, but it, it's one way in which philosophers and theologians who have tried to understand the CSR literature, tried to kind of think through the mechanics of those types of explanations and say, well, what really are the implications, both theologically and philosophically, if this model is correct? You did make a move there, which I know you know that you made, which is that to say God is not an actor in there, unless, of course, God's doing all of that stuff and giving Billy that cognitive hardware. And so this gets to the question of the worry, really, of like, if we're explaining religion uh, the cognitive aspect of religion physically, naturally, how are we not explaining it away and saying, well, it's just not God? Right. So, and in a lot of ways, what we're teasing out here on this very specific application of cognitive science to how it is that people form belief in supernatural agents and get involved in all these expressions that are deemed religious, it's very similar in a lot of ways to evolutionary creation, right? So people who understand evolutionary science and just see the overwhelming evidence for the common ancestry of all living things and descent with modification over time and speciation and all the wonderful things that we learn through evolutionary science, there's a similar kind of question there to say, well, for some Christian perspective, some think, well, there has to be special creation out of nothing of a fully formed species, or what's the point? I mean, then anything less than that doesn't count as creation. And uh, But it's really interesting to ask them, why is that more valuable? I mean, it gives you a kind of like a God who does things that appear to us to be cool and crazy and undeniable. So maybe that's the psychological value of that. But what's the there's a there's a prestige factor there. I mean, you know, we got a kick ass God doing, you know, making stuff out of nothing. You know, that's 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 the God I want to believe in. Some people might say. Yeah. But then, of course, to say, well, God created a universe that has been expanding for 14 billion years and turned into all this complexity. I mean, that's also awesome. Right. It's not theologically. It's not clear what the motivation is to need humans snapped into place. But and of course you know this, but to coin a phrase, I mean, for many people in that kind of mindset and tradition, they don't have permission to think through the theology and life experience in those categories. They're just not allowed to go there, right? So I think I was talking with Justin about this and I think he said something about suppose I could explain to you the cognitive machinery and the neurological machinery by which my wife and I feel love toward each other. Here's the serotonin, here's the dopamine, here's uh, the neural pathways that we form every time we choose to do something nice for each other instead of choose to do it for ourselves. And as you say that, I'm imagining that they probably had that conversation. (laughs) They probably do, yeah. (laughs) He's enough of a nerd. But like, just because you can explain that stuff does not mean that they don't love each other. Like, the the question of whether or not they love each other is an emergent property. It's above that. You use different language to talk about that. You could still talk about what makes it neurologically possible for them to love each other. Is that basically what we're doing? We're saying, what is the cognitive machinery that is at play when people have religious belief and religious action? Yeah, that's a big part of what we're talking about here. I think one way it kind of gets amped up a little bit, though, and the stakes get ratcheted a little bit higher, is, you know, you're kind of confronted with the very real possibility that people would, you know, philosophers like to talk about possible worlds, you know, these kind of logically consistent alternative possibilities that seem metaphysically possible, not ruled out by logic, let's say. And so imagine 
a world that looks pretty much like ours, but one in which God doesn't exist. And on the CSR perspective, the religious life of Homo sapiens would look pretty much like it does in the actual world. Sure. And so that, you might think, is worrisome for people. Well, it's just like with evolution. If you accept theistic evolution or evolutionary creation, some religious claims are not going to work anymore. Plenty of others still will. Right. And so, it, and we're going to, later on, towards the end, I'm going to ask you what you think some of the particular approaches to Christianity that are supported or that work well with this model, and then some of the ones that don't. So it's not neutral. It's not theologically neutral, but it's also not in itself theologically defeating. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah, about I think, right? Yeah, I think that's, I think it's pretty, pretty fair to say. But I think, and this is where I think if a person is open to it, really being able to, to just kind of look at, at the science kind of square on uh, and, and think through what it means for your understanding of God, the universe, and everything in between— is that it does open up space for a certain kind of humility. And I don't like throwing out the mystery card too much, but I think there is a sense of wonder and mystery. Like, if it really is the case that if, you know, considering that other that other kind of imaginary world in which, for the sake of hypothesis, there is no God, but the religious life of humans kind of looks very similar to what it would be in the actual world, then for those of us who do believe in God, it kind of forces us to think through some of the things we've clung to as far as certainty or evidences or other things. Yeah. And we need to kind of, I think, shift our emphasis away from that. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, just for me on that possible world, I don't think my life looks any different, except maybe I wouldn't give my life for my faith. I wouldn't die, but I would probably do pretty much everything else the same. And I wouldn't know that I was wrong about it until I was dead and didn't know that I was wrong. And so that's kind of an interesting thought experiment of like, what would actually change for you? Yeah. So let's do kind of our main section here. What are thus far in this fairly new science, the main findings, the basic findings in cognitive science of religion? Yeah, we touched a little bit on it kind of earlier and maybe I'll just start rambling and you can kind of interject and interrupt. Cool. So you mentioned earlier uh, the cognitive revolution and just kind of historically in the 50s and 60s, you had uh, psychologists through a variety of different means, uh, as well as philosophers, making a psychological move away from behaviorism and psychology to this notion that the mind in virtue of just the internal structure that it has kind of prepares human beings to encounter the world a certain way. And so this move away from the idea that you come into the world as a blank slate that gets informed by external pressures and cultures, and that kind of influences what you believe. The cognitive revolution offered a different perspective to say, well, we can't just believe anything. And in fact, it seems that there are kind of structures that we bring to the world of experience that kind of shapes and constrains how we can acquire information, what kind of things are going to be easier for us, what kind of things are going to be more difficult for us, right? I've heard that described as like, basically, the software can change based on where we're born, what we happen to learn, what we happen to see. But there's also some hardware, and that's much harder to change. And it seems to push us in Mm -hmm. pretty predictable directions. For instance, you don't have 
a lot of children growing up and not assuming that there are agents behind causes, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, right? Ex- right. And I think we can't help but grab for metaphors. I've used talked about tools and toolboxes, software, yeah. hardware analogies. And no, no metaphor is going to be particularly perfect. And one of the reasons that cognitive uh, psychologists don't necessarily like the hardware kind of language or are more or hesitant or hardwiring yeah. because that seems to suggest that it's immutable, right? But, but as we not, know, yeah. but it's not. There's ways in which the propensities that we have can be shaped and changed and altered to some degree uh, over time. But out of this, uh, what the cognitive revolution kind of created the space for was different research trajectories, applying that to different aspects of human experience. And so in that tradition, you had folks like Chomsky applying kind of a cognitive approach to how we understand and acquire language and language acquisition. And then a little bit after that, you had anthropologists and psychologists and philosophers applying this kind of approach to the study of religion. And so you had lots of interesting dynamics going on in the university scene and where religion kind of fits in the university curriculum, right? A lot of universities had divinity schools or kind of confessional approaches to engage religion, primarily Christian religion, if we're talking North America. By confessional, we mean they are starting with agreeing to some particular creed, Westminster right. confession, yeah. whatever. Think denominational, that kind of thing. And they go and do theology based on that. Yeah, air quotes, religious studies, but within kind of a confessional tradition. Right, right? yeah. And not that there's not good work that, you know, you can do good work within a confessional kind of context, but it's a very particular way of engaging religion in the university scene. But what the cognitive approach to the experience of religion, which is cross-cultural and through time, right, allowed was a re-engagement of the study of religion in universities, but in a different kind of way, using scientific approaches, right? So now you have researchers asking, well, you know, what do these cognitive methods, how can they help us understand the religious mind? You know, it's interesting, like, you might think a more secular Western liberal democracy kind of mindset to say, well, you know... once, once we just educate enough people, they're going to kind of move away from religious belief. Yeah, it's a big assumption at various times in the academy. And it has not borne out. And what CSR does is it kind of it gives a good answer to that. It's just it's really hard to stamp out these things that are so, so natural to us cognitively. So let's get a couple specific examples of aspects of the brain or cognition that apply directly to religious belief. Sure. Just one more kind of background thing that's going to be relevant and just kind of the language of dual processing, right? So as researchers started to kind of map cognitive processes and map the mechanisms in the mind for how we engage experience and process information, it occurred to them that... And here I'm thinking of people like Kahneman and Tversky, who were kind of pioneers in this kind of language. But they began to sort these mental tools into two broad types, right? So you've got some mental tools that are intended to operate at a pre-reflective level, right? Lizard brain. Kind of. Some people will sometimes call it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jonathan Haidt calls it the elephant. Yes. Kahneman calls it system one. It's that non-reflective stuff that is harder to change about yourself. Not impossible, like as you're saying, not hardwired, but really designed to act quickly, to save cognitive energy, to save bodily calories by sort of these rules of thumb that it applies without reflecting. Right. So these quick, automatic, fast kind of mental tools that generate content, descriptive content to our minds that do 
cognitive work for us. And, and it's at a level that we're not really consciously aware of, right? And right. you can contrast that with a different set of tools that are grouped under system two or type two kind of processes where this is now, you know, you use the word, um, you know, cognitive load. I think you did. But system two kind of tools are slower, more reflective. This is kind of when you really pay attention to something and you think through and you're conscious of the content of what you're thinking. You're engaging a a system two kind of process, right? So often when, you know, if I ask you a question about what you're feeling or what you're thinking or something like that, and you kind of slow down and you think through, there you've got a system two kind of mental tool. Often you're just kind of reading off what's been there and that system one is kind of fed to you. Mm But an example, maybe you and I are driving in the car. I'm driving the car. System one is driving. I'm not consciously thinking about (laughs) it. Yeah, that's right. You ask me a question. When did you first believe in God? I go, oh, that's interesting. I don't, I have to think about that. I'm going back to being three or four years old. Meanwhile, a dog runs out in the street. I slam on the brakes. System one can do a lot while I'm thinking about system two. Right. So or using my system to abilities, that is to say. So that's like kind of one way of uh, and Paul Bloom, the psychologist in in critiquing some of the the I don't know, he, he believes in system one, and system two. But in critiquing how rational people are, he says, look, if you have someone like give some implicit association of a face with a value. Sure. But if you ask them why they decided to send their kids to private or public school. Like they're going to have thought about that. They will have used their system to, to like really deliberate on that. Very few people will send their kids to a certain school on system one, just reflexively without any thought. I mean, there may be some people, but you would hope there's not very many people that would do that. Yeah. And we're getting a sense that the way that these processes, they're in communication with each other. And the interesting thing is they can give us conflicting information. Right. Yeah. And and the cool examples here are all these really great perceptual illusions where the checker shadow illusion. I don't know yep, if you're familiar I've with that, that one. Yeah. 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 Where, you know, you've got a, a checkerboard with black and white shaded squares and a cylinder that casts a shadow. And two of the squares are marked. One's light and one's dark to the naked eye. Yeah. But in fact, the two shadow squares are exactly the same. Because there's a part of our cognition that just sees a shadow and makes it that's darker. So I can know through system two processes that they're the same color, but But I can't, I can't, I can't know unless you do other things to include the cylinder. If you like cover up parts of it, then you can do it. But you just, so what are some of these? Is it fair to say that most of what cognitive science of religion is looking at are basically system one capacities? Or is it both? Uh, it's both, but I think the sense is that it's largely the processes that are involved in forming religious beliefs or that are engaged in practices that are significant for religion, like ritual and uh, okay. other types of things, are largely system one. Yeah, And so there's lots of ways in which that kind of makes sense of people's religious experience when very few people, it seems, if they really do kind of a genealogy of their own kind of religious life and journey, very few people, it seems, come to a religious point of view through arguments through system two kinds of processes. Often it's just a more immediate response to particular experiences that are interpreted a certain way. And that kind of supports a certain kind of outlook and perspective. And that's essentially what CSR has done as researchers started to apply these methods to the experience of religion and how figure out how religious beliefs seem to be a function of some of these mental tools that we have. 
So let's, let's right. get into some of these tools. All right. So one of the tools that's been identified is agency detection and this idea that there are quick and automatic inferences that we make in uh, certain situations to just assume that there is an agent behind some phenomenon that we're encountering, right? So it goes by different names. Justin coined the phrasing hypersensitive agency detection device or had. And the idea here is that we have evolved with a certain kind of cognitive mechanism that operates at a system one level for lots of good reasons in order to let's navigate our environment and be sensitive to when there's possible danger nearby, right? So if you're in the savanna and you hear a rustling, it's to your advantage to assume that there's something that is making that noise. It's not just the wind per se, but you just automatically uh, do. I had this experience just running twice this last two weeks. I'm running down a sidewalk in Palm Springs and it's like insanely hot and I'm just, you know, just like, when is this going to be over? And the bushes next to the sidewalk, there's like a hissing sound. And I'm just, and I had seen kind of lizards kind of run back and forth, but I literally went ah, as, as I'm running and veered, you know, three feet to the left. In case it was a snake. Yeah. Or could have been a lizard. I don't really like those too much either. Right. Yeah. And, um, well, and isn't there interesting stuff specifically about babies and snakes? It's like much easier to get a baby to be afraid of snakes than it is to get them to be afraid of flowers or yeah a box or something like that right yeah clowns would be an interesting case study yeah yeah. (laughs) but so that would that would seem to say like yeah there's some evolved stuff going on here that is not value neutral it's not content neutral right exactly and uh, so agency detection seems to be well supported and you can put it in a good theoretically coherent kind of evolutionary context so the obvious connection with agency detection is god is not a physical being how the hell could we naturally believe in God or that God would do anything? Possibly. The cognitive structure is this agent, this hypersensitive agency detection, which of course says nothing about whether or not God exists. If God does exist, then this is how we perceive God. If God doesn't exist, then this is why we think we perceive God. Yeah. Something I, like that. I, I think that's right. That's a good way to put it. And I think part of, I mean, we can see for each of these kind of mental tools that we'll be talking about, we can see particular ways in which they might be taking the lead in forming or supporting a particular kind of religious belief or experience. But I think it's important to realize they all kind of work together, right? Yeah. So, okay. so uh, let's go, let's move on to another one. Yeah. yeah. So, so this idea that we see things happening for a reason, for purposes, and that is kind of a, a shortcut that we apply to all sorts of activities in our life. And it helps us make sense of our experience, right? We quickly jump to narratives that make sense and And we see this developmentally in children at a fairly early age, and it continues across lifespan. And, you know, there's some famous experiments that were done with kids at certain ages to kind of ask them, why are these rocks pointy? And children will naturally gravitate toward answers like, well, so that animals don't sit on them or those kinds of things. So there's, in responding to why questions, we tend to gravitate towards some kind of explanation to locate things in purpose. Rather than saying they're pointy because the wind and rain made them pointy. No, they're pointy so that... Animals don't sit in them and get hurt. Yeah, exactly. And we can incline ourselves away from engaging kind of system to a little bit more effortful processes. We can 
put the brakes on that somewhat. But the interesting thing, and there's research that shows that even among people who are decidedly not religious, you know, inclined to like a, a strong kind of agnosticism or atheism, from their own kind of intellectual standpoint, and, and uh, researchers have creative ways of doing this. But when you put those people under cognitive load and get them to respond to all sorts of other things, they default to purposeful explanations, not necessarily, you know, God per se, but they will also explain things in terms of purpose or agency or that kind of thing as in some kind of larger design. Cognitive load means basically you're having them engage in a consistent task that uses up a bunch of system two resources. And then you ask them questions and they answer system one. And that system one answer is purpose driven. The purpose driven mind or explanatory device. Okay. (laughs) Rick Warren's new science informed book that will lose him all of his followers. Um, I think he's doing okay. Yeah, he's fine. Uh, Yeah, so for sure. So that's a really interesting result that is a fairly well supported empirically in the literature. That one's really interesting to think about in a meta sense, because I'm at a point now where the only way I can even really make sense of theism versus atheism is there is meaning and purpose in the world or there isn't. In effect, there is some sort of story or something story-like with an ending that makes sense of the beginning and the middle. And so on the one hand, you could, again, you can go either way with this. You could say, because the universe does have meaning, it is God's intention or whatever that we are able to perceive of it because we are the beings that can pray and commune with God and whatnot. Or you could say the reason that, Dan, that you think there's meaning (laughs) in the world is that you just happen to be born with this cognitive machinery. It's really hard for you to not think that. Yeah, it's very hard for you to think there is no meaning. Well, and this is kind of where it intersects with, like you've kind of mentioned or alluded to, just the daily experience of religious believers. I'm part of a, a running group, and I've got this one friend who does like to say that everything happens for a reason. And so this other person in our group was really trying, you know, hard to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And she missed it by like 20 seconds. So she wasn't able to qualify. And so my other friend says, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. I said, yeah, the reason is she ran too damn slow. Right. Right. And she said, no, 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 everything happens for a purpose. So difference between some kind of natural causal kind of explanation, but we want to fit it in some kind of larger purpose. Right. And there's a a natural way of the mind is oriented towards that. So there's actually a middle position, I suppose, where you might say, look, I'm going to take this cognitive research and I'm going to discount the fact that I always think God has some particular purpose for everything that happens. It might be that God is perfectly fine with all sorts of outcomes and lets creaturely free will work and all that stuff. But then there is an overarching purpose that I have in a kind of a deeper moral sense. But my question to you is, is that overarching deeper sense of purpose, is that actually the same mechanism as attributing the sharp rocks so that animals don't sit on them? Or is that actually something that I've come to through system two? I'd say it's more the latter. And I think that's the way that these kind of things can interplay. So working on a co-authored chapter in a handbook on cognitive science of religion, and it's co-authored with a cognitive psychologist. And so we're looking at through some of the theological implications of this science. And we go into a fair amount of detail on this idea of purpose and how we should think through it. And one of the things we're arguing for is that because we have such a strong 
propensity towards attributing purpose that anytime we do attribute purpose and agency, there's extra realization, I think, for us to kind of step back and say, okay, it's easy for me to attribute purpose. And I kind of fill in the gaps by saying, this is what divine purpose is in this particular situation. What I think the science does tell us is give us a cautionary tale to kind of take a step back and as best as we can through system two type of processes, kind of try and lift that up to the mind's eye and ask, why should I think that the purpose that is in this particular event is actually what I'm attributing to it? Is it just my mind filling in the gaps because I need to tell some story to make it all make sense? Or could something else be going on? So there's a book sitting right next to me on the couch here that you've read. It's called When God Talks Back by Tanya Lerman. And in the preface, she sort of sets it up as, look, there is a lot of really interesting work going on evolutionary psychology. She actually mentions Justin Barrett by name in, in a footnote. But that there's like two questions here. One is like, well, how come people tend to be so religious? And a lot of that gets to that's what is being discovered in this cognitive revolution. But she says, but that's not really the main question. The main question is then these people become adults and they have all this counter evidence like suffering in the world and God not appearing to work the way that they would want God to work. And then the question is, how do they still believe? Yeah. And so that's and not maybe, just believe in God, but believe in a very particular kind of active God right. who's doing shit all the time and yeah. is there in the room with you, talking with you and, right. and present in that particular way. And in some sense, I believe in that kind of a God, maybe not to the extent of these kind of more charismatic vineyard type of Protestants, but certain amount of communication and will and whatnot. And so she's kind of framing of like, there's sort of two questions here. And we're mostly talking about the first question today, which is how do we come to these beliefs in the first place? But then there's this interesting other question. How do people retain belief in spite of other kinds of evidence? And that's kind of what we're getting to with some of the application of it, maybe. For sure. And also, I think the way in which system two interacts with system one. Exactly. And I think just to kind of close the circle on the When God Talks Back book. I mean, what she shows in very specific and well-researched detail is how within the Vineyard Movement, there is a well-organized capacity to, the term is cultural scaffolding, right? That there's supports and methods that are adopted that help train system one to navigate experience in a certain way. And so when you've got the right kind of cultural scaffolding in place, you really can train your mind and tune your mind such that you can't help but think of God as being right there in the room. And all different ways to kind of handle the uh, what you said is the counter evidences or experiences that might incline you away from that kind of thing. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it, it makes me think of the conversation I had with Sarah Lane Ritchie at this same seminar. I don't know which episode's coming out first, but talking about spiritual technologies. And we've been having dinner with her most That's such a great chatting. term, by the way. Like, Isn't it? Yeah. Good? Spiritual technologies. That you might notice the efficacy of those choices that they make and go, oh, see how they are basically stacking the deck against other th forms. You might also look at it and say they have a, a firm belief that is warranted perhaps and they have a desire to become a certain kind of person and so they're organizing their lives in such a way that they will become that kind of person yeah and, and then I, you might think that's great. And I think that's kind of where Lerman ends up in the book. She's got yeah. a chapter called, But Are They Crazy? And I think you gave a, a way of summarizing kind of where she winds up, which is to say, well, you know, there's a sense in which if it's providing meaning and fulfillment and flourishing in a certain way, then that's not a bad thing. What I want to say is be careful about the goal. Yeah. 
if you have a really worthwhile goal, then totally set your life up such that you can achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, and this is something my collaborator, Laird Edmund, and I kind of point out in the work that we're doing together, is that this is not original to us, but just because you engage system two, you might think that you've done your due diligence now, right? So suppose you are inclined through system one processes to think that something is true. You encounter some, something that might cause you to consider it in system two to say, is it really true? Just because you're engaging system two, it does not mean that you're now a perfect reasoner. And in fact, there's all sorts of ways to show that system two processes were subject to all sorts of biases and errors there too. But in some ways it almost makes it worse because now we're certainly inclined to hold beliefs more strongly once we've engaged system two processes. And we have the impression that we've really done the thinking. When I was 20, I really considered the evidence for Jesus' resurrection in Christianity. <laughs> yeah, I was I've, like, I've done the work. When I was yeah, 20. I mean, yeah. I hadn't done the work yet, yeah. but I, for many years, I was sort of able to think of it as if, no, I've gone through my doubting period. <laughs> yeah. But, but, at the <laughs> same ta- but at the same time, I mean, life is short and there are things sure. to do and we can't, I mean... I feel fortunate to be in a vocation and profession where part of what I'm do as my job is to think through things that I think are really cool and interesting and I get to research them. Yeah. But that's not a, not everyone has the time or luxury or space to kind of engage in that work. And none of us do all the time. We wouldn't survive if we depended on system two. That's not a shot to say that people are depending on system one or using shortcuts, even when they engage in system two. It's just, it's just really a cautionary tale to say that if you are intentionally participating in building cultural scaffolding to train your mind in a certain way. It is worthwhile periodically to ask, well, why these ways? Yep, exactly. Or why toward this particular end? Another big one, and we talked a little bit about it earlier, is this idea of what goes by the handle theory of mind. And that is the capacity that we have to attribute mental states to other objects, other beings. And again, there's great and very well-supported empirical basis for the existence of this mental tool. Now, again, this is the idea is that we come to the world inclined to believe certain things are true based on the experience that we have. And one of the things that we are strongly inclined to do is to recognize faces, to notice something different about faces as opposed to just even drawings of faces. We're more There's great experimental work on infants hours outside of the womb to see that their attention is drawn to faces and you even get mimicking actions very soon, right? So that kind of research does strongly support the idea that there is these kind of core cognitive processes that we just come into the world with and yeah. incline us a certain way. And so... And that, you know, is persistent across lifespan. There's there's great cross-species work showing how human cognition compares relative to other primates and our close kind of ancestors in the evolutionary tree. And one of the things that does separate, I mean, there's interesting studies that show that on a range of function, adult chimpanzees and human toddlers have a very similar range of skills, Yeah. except when it comes to navigating social space and the capacity to represent the mental states of others, humans so are off the, the theory charts. of mind stuff. Right. We're it's, just much, much better at it. And it's, uh, you can kind of see how this works. And we do it even with inanimate objects. I mean, there's cool experiments showing, you know, Imagine like a a screen where you've got a large red square, quote unquote, chasing, you know, small blue triangles and they're trying to get away and different things. Well, even just that way of telling the story, it's just shapes moving on a screen. But we can't help but think of there being a a predator, a prey, danger, you know, what's going on. I've seen that video. Yeah, it's incredible. You're just like. 
oh yeah this one's chasing this one <laughs> yeah and this is you know yeah. and it's like mm-hmm. but it's just moving shapes there's no <laughs> yeah. eyes they're yeah. not anthropomorphic in any way so that is so weird like why do we automatically think of it that way yeah but again in an evolutionary perspective there's, there's a benefit there's a, there's a total benefit to be able to not only imprint and be attached to your parents your mother in particular as your an helpless infant but also then as you mature and live in relationship and community, the ability to navigate social space, people talk about emotional intelligence. A lot of that is just highly developed theories of mind where they're with accurately able to attribute and understand what's going on by reading the room. Right. My wife has a better theory of mind than I have. <laughs> yeah. Or you could maybe even think in hunting and whatnot, like, oh, this animal, I can tell they're thinking this click, click, clack or whistle, whistle. I mean, I'm going way, way, way back a million years ago, whatever, you know, <laughs> hey, point like they're going to go that way. Yeah, uh, I, I don't put know. Put the so net down or whatever. Uh, or throw I, the spear. I don't know so much about that kind of stuff. But I think that there is, though, human animal kind of interactions. Our uh, theory of mind gets activated uh, quite a bit. Just think of the way in which. Dogs. Yeah, that's right. Right. And uh, the way in which people interact with domesticated animals, but also hunting in, in the wild. I know I audited a, a course with a great indigenous theologian, Terry LeBlanc, last summer. And one of the things he was just talking about how hunting kind of fits into the experience of First Nations peoples. And he, he told this story where often when in hunting deer, there'll be this moment where you kind of see the animal's face. And he just, in a very kind of mystical way, interpreted that experience as the animal saying, okay, I'm here for you. The creator has given me to you. And, you know, I'm basically surrendering, right? And, and so there's kind of this almost kind of face-to-face kind of encounter that is how he interpreted it. I kind of listen and think, well, that makes sense within a particular kind of worldview. But I don't know cognitively what's going on in a deer's head. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, an, yeah. But if he does know, then it's his theory of mind that's right. letting him know. Yeah. Right? And regardless of whether you know it or not. The, that you would attribute a mental right. state. Yes, yeah. Right. Is, is kind of, you know, that, that kind of mental point. state. All right. So we've got agency detection. We've got this teleofunctional reasoning or this purpose-driven outlook. And the fact that we can't help but attribute mental states to other objects. And this is something we come out of the womb with. And so... Evolutionary psychologists tend to kind of look at these mental tools and theorize how and in what ways they're adaptive and contribute to our survival and capacity to reproduce. Cognitive scientists of religion will look at these tools and say, well, the dominant model seems to be that religion itself wasn't selected for. Evolutionary mechanisms didn't have as a goal uh, religion wasn't selected for. But when you have this particular cocktail of mental tools in the box— to mix your metaphors, yeah, religion just emerges as a byproduct. These are called spandrel theories, yeah. right? This so, is sort of the atheist account of the beginning of religion. And Lerman talks about, you know, this is Daniel Dennett's basic mm-hmm. explanation. This mm-hmm. is sort of the new atheist's basic explanation. Yeah, but, There's but, one way to go. But you can even, I mean, I think it's, it's not so much whether it's an atheist view or something that's supportive of religion. It's more just weighing in with respect to where you see religion as an outgrowth of the tools, mm-hmm. right? How, you know, what was the purpose or to what end is the particular evolutionary mechanism directed? Is it ended towards religion or is it ended towards something else? Survival or something. Or well, and, and gene replication or what well, agency detection or Okay. mental state attribution yeah. or that kind right. of thing. And so I, I believe Justin adopts kind of a spandrel view, right? Okay. So I always thought the spandrel view was like necessarily meant 
yeah, religion is just this byproduct. It's mm-hmm. merely this byproduct. Mm-hmm. And well, it's the, the merely that's that would be so you, maybe you, that's that's not necessary right. for a spandrel view. So mm-hmm. how so, so, the, so the question yeah. is religion adaptive or maladaptive? And if it's okay. adaptive, then it's something that was selected for. If it's but and there are all sorts of ways to kind of account for that too. Like you could have something that it turns out wasn't selected for, but is it does itself have a survival value, right? And then yeah. becomes part of the framework. I mean, many many people recognize that there are certain kind of pro-social elements to religion. This is some of the cool stuff that comes out of CSR, too, as it goes beyond just looking at kind of cognitive structures, but also then layering through that an aspect of cultural evolution, right? So how do certain concepts, what accounts for their successful transmission in culture, and how do they influence the evolution of societies, too? One benefit of becoming a patron of this show is exclusive episodes each month. This last week, I spoke with Zach Bolin, primary songwriter and lead singer of the band Citizens. Their new record, Fear, is really, really good and rides some interesting lines between Christian and secular music, in air quotes, of course. It is raw and honest, and a lot of the lyrics focus around fear, doubt, uncertainty, We talk about those lyrics, the kind of middle genre of Christian indie music that they find themselves in, and fallout from the implosion of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, including the Mars Hill record label, which was releasing Citizens Records. Uh, You're hearing their song, Fear, right now. Great song. But here are some clips from my chat with Zach. It's not me necessarily sharing a specific story. Yeah, right. But it is me speaking personally to just the ways in which that I've seen fear completely paralyze me. And because of that fear, it just instills tremendous doubt, both um, in God, but also in myself. And, and so a friend used this picture that I thought was really interesting as he was listening to the song. He kind of, he's, he's like, I just almost imagine he, he had pitched this music video idea of, you know, what if it was from the inside of this egg and you're the bird, this, you know, like the camera is just like, you're seeing this, you start to this black screen and you're just like pecking your way through this, through this egg and little bits of light start to come through. And then you finally break through and it's like, all right, are you going to (laughs) fly or are you going to just stay, stay right back here? And some of that I think is like, I think it's really true. It's like you get to a certain point where you sort of like break through the things that like, that's what this, there was a lot of revelation happening. And so you, you start realizing a lot of these things about yourself, about culture, about the ways that it's affecting lots of different people, decisions, the way that fear is affecting people. And then you're sort of like, all right, what do I do with it? And for me, I got to the place where it's like, man, I just, I want to be like, I want to be like that bird. <laughs> I just want to fly. I just want to soar. I just want to be released of these things yeah. and, and be caught up more in, I just don't want to believe that fear is that strong. That one's an interesting one because, all right, so we're talking about how maybe we were raised as young people and our understanding of faith was a bit narrow. Whereas this song is sort of addressing a lot of what I think is been sort of like uh theologies that have been really pressed on people through like christian music (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, um, that's what this song is kind of getting at a lot. Is um, what, what do you mean by? But yeah, you know, it is. It's written, and I don't necessarily. I don't think I. Re- I don't regret it. You know. Yeah. No, but I, I think I, yeah. as a writer, I would just say I. I might have found a more eloquent way to, uh, to to explain something like that. I think that the reason it's like that, Dan, is because you're right. In the reformed world, <laughs> it's very much like you need to say it exactly like this, and yeah. there is no room. A, a great example: there is a song out there that uses the word condescending. In a in a church song, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. But I can't think of. What I it's really, called. I I um, I don't know if they'd listen to this podcast or not, but and I know one of the guys. I think they're he's uh, two of the guys actually. They're really great guys. This so this is less a criticism of them, but more just I think within that world, I think it's easy and within the neo reform world, it's like I'm going to use this word like this technical theological term, and five. But, Six, seven years ago, I would have been like, that's awesome. But yeah. now what I would say is you shouldn't have used that word and instead write seven songs about that. Unpacking mm-hmm. that concept. Unpacking it. Yeah, because also because people tend to think that neo-reformed white dudes are pretty condescending. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of opening yourself uh, up to, it's, it's, it's no, a big, you're condescending. Yeah, you tee yourself up for <laughs> yeah, some bad, bad stuff. So even if you don't become a patron, you should listen to this record, which again is called Fear by the band Citizens. It's streaming everywhere. Uh, I really enjoy it. I listen to it a lot. They did not pay me uh, to have Zach on here or talk about this record. I'm just telling you. I like it. It's interesting. I think it's doing an interesting thing. Um, But if you do want to enjoy these exclusive episodes, if you want to join the patron-only Facebook group, or if you just think that this podcast is valuable and you want to help me get through grad school with limited student loans, please head to patreon.com slash dancoke or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron starts at just five bucks a month. And there are some scholarships available for those whose finances will not even allow that much right now. You can email me about that. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Okay. Back to the episode, but I'm going to play a little bit more of that citizen song fear before we do that. Cultural evolution is the topic of my uh, interview with Justin, actually. Yeah. So that's how these two kind of combine. So in a sense, you can go either way. I mean, this is really my next question for you is like, is all this stuff evidence for theism or atheism or is it sort of neither? I think it's neither, actually. I think that some people, the majority of voices will look at the data from CSR and say that that we have now explained religion away. We've got strong evidence that traditional monotheistic belief certainly is not well supported by the science and there's evidence against it. There are a few people who try and look at the data from CSR as evidence for theism. Justin and uh, our, our seminar participant here, Ian Church, have an article that tries to argue that atheists should feel some pressure because they're the outliers here in the sense that they don't mm. believe in what is naturally inclined by our cognitive processes. So my own view, and I've uh, uh, done some work on this and written some stuff, is that cognizance of religion doesn't support atheism. But if you are an atheist, what 
what the science does do is it gives you uh, what I call intellectual aid and comfort. It does kind of fit with an overall kind of naturalistic picture of the world. It gives you a, a very plausible, well-supported answer to the question, you know, why is it that religion persists even in what you might think are educational contexts that might incline someone away from religious belief? It does undermine certain kinds of religious claims, right? So Yeah, you, so let's talk about what some of those might be. If you think that, so you're driving home from work and maybe the sun's going down and the sky's lit up and it's all beautiful orange as the sun's going down and, you know, Pacific Northwest people, Seattle, Vancouver, shout out. Yeah. Yeah. And you see, you know, the sun glistening on the mountains and the trees and, you know, many, many people have a strong kind of spiritual like kind of moments when they see that kind of natural beauty, religious or not. And so if you think, oh, God is just an artist. Thank you, God, for painting this beautiful picture, this beautiful sunset for me. And they kind of have that response. And if you think that a person like that must just say, how can you not believe? Like the best explanation for this sense of beauty and wonder is that there's a God behind it who has kind of painted and created it, right? And what CSR does is it allows someone who doesn't believe in God to say, well, here's another explanation as to what's going on cognitively. Like that kind of encounter needn't necessarily force you into a religious affirming response, you can give a completely different account of what's going on. So that's not evidence. It's kind of a sad account. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't really put its thumb on the scale the other way. Right. Because you are existing. You might not exist. You might not be able to see beauty. You can see Mm. beauty. Well, Well, and it's not quite that you can't see beauty. It's just that the beauty that you see for the for the atheist doesn't force her to put God as the author. Right? Sure, yeah. So, But that's a good point, and you're getting at what I'm saying is that I don't think CSR is evidence for atheism, right. but what it does do is it provides some kind of intellectual aid and comfort in that it allows you to tell a story in those sure. kinds of moments. Yeah, I mean, the, the broad scope of intellectual history in the West over the last five or six hundred years is that it has been easier and easier to be an atheist because before science, you know, modern science, before certain philosophical schools, before sort of critical approaches to the Bible in the West, there was just like very little room. It was like, well, here we have this authoritative book. We don't have anything else competing with it. So, you know, it's another of all those things. Yeah, but I think, I mean, someone should write a counterfactual history of intellectual development in the West where scientific discoveries didn't make it easier to be an atheist, made it easier to be a more interesting Christian. Uh, I think that's part of it, too. Yeah. And basically allows us to mess around with some of these fascinating questions that we just wouldn't have even had the language for yeah. back then. So give me another example of Um, A kind of claim that a Christian might make that you think "Mm, CSR might put a little damper on that. Well, some people might evidentially put a lot of weight in their own kind of subjective experience as evidence for God. So that might be people will just kind of appeal to, well, I sensed God's presence or I couldn't help but believe, you know, that what else could explain that except, you know, the Holy Spirit's working in my life or. But do you think that anybody like only gives that like. I understand in a vacuum, if you said, the only reason I'm a Christian is that I have spiritual experience and there's no other way to explain spiritual experience. Sure, bad argument. But 
I don't know if anybody makes that argument. So for me, spiritual experience is a really big, important part of it, but it's not the only part. I also look at all these people who are really Christ-like. I want to be like them. I think there's, there's intuitive stuff about beauty and aesthetics and just like, wow, that seems unnecessary, but it's really great. You can tell a story of why it's there. And then it's also like not just the sort of basic experience of detecting God's agency, but just the depth of other kinds of experiences that love of my wife and love of the marginalized and that, well, that lines up with Jesus. And, you know, so there's all these 10, 20 categories of evidence. If I relied solely on the experience argument, sure, maybe cognitive science can undo that. But it's also related to all this other stuff. Yeah, I think, um, so a couple of things. I think that's an empirical question to ask, to what degree do people actually depend on solely or primarily mm. on the experience argument? Yeah. And that would be, we all kind of have our own anecdotal evidence in that regard in terms of people that we run into or know. I teach philosophy at a private Christian university in Canada, and I do encounter, maybe not the majority, I haven't actually done the, the survey work, but it's not uncommon for me to hear people really put lots of weight in their own kind of personal interpretation of events as being evidence for the existence of God and, and very faith confirming. And so I'm not discounting that, but what I'm saying is that, and, and for each of these other areas that you kind of listed, you know, these 10, 20, 20 areas, CSR would very likely be able to tell some story that explains through cognitive processes in which you don't need God as an actor in them to kind of understand what's going on cognitively. And so, again, that's not evidence for atheism, right. but what it does do is it kind of it provides this kind of umbrella or intellectual aid and comfort. You know, it's interesting, actually, you're making me think about the spiritual experience discernment stuff a little bit more. And it reminds me that, like, I think I'm when I say I rely a lot on my spiritual experience, I don't mean it the same way that you're talking about, which is, well, it just seems to me to be clear that, like, this is God doing something or something like that. It makes me think of Ignatius, who had tried to kind of be conscious of this, of like, hey, not every good feeling is spiritual consolation. In order for <laughs> it to count as spiritual consolation, it has to appear to like not have a normal cause. It has to be sort of the effect is greater than whatever you think the cause could have been. And you can't be sure, but like that already is getting at the fact that this sort of guy before the scientific revolution for all that recognized natively a kind of like, ah, people can attribute things to God that maybe are just in their head. And so let's be a bit more rigorous about what we call God's actions. I don't know. How do you think that that interacts? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, since kind of Western philosophy's roots in ancient Greece, there have been Plato and people in that kind of rationalist tradition have been suspicious of just automatically trusting the deliverance of your senses. And so you don't just believe something because you see it. You believe something because you've been able to appreciate the pure form of it through pure reason and philosophy and the, the true, the beautiful and the good. And that certainly applies to religious good as well, right? So not that we should be Platonists, but I think that the healthy philosophical, if not distrust, at least scrutiny of things that come to us automatically from the senses, just because it's easy to believe doesn't mean that it, we should automatically think that it's true. There is a lot of data here that gives people who are not religious kind of tools to understand the experience of those who are in ways that don't necessarily incline them to believe. Yeah, definitely. 
And but, but but that's not evidence, right? And that's not rational support for atheism. That's just you know I, that only helps flesh out an atheistic worldview if you come to the experience with that way. And in the background of all this is like, what do you think faith is? Do you think faith is a rational response to evidence, <laughs> or do you think faith is a commitment? to follow God in light of insufficient evidence. I lean a lot toward a lot more towards the latter. Yeah. I think I'm okay talking about faith in terms of beliefs, but I think that philosophers sometimes talk about different types of knowledge, right? So there's knowing there's the kind of knowledge we have of persons interpersonally, just through acquaintance and recognition and experience. There's knowledge that we have of skills, know-how kind of activity, hitting a baseball, driving, driving a standard vehicle, just kind of physical knowledge that we have through practices that we can engage in where it becomes so fluid for us that we just know how to do stuff. But then there's also propositional knowledge where we know if we have any such knowledge that we know facts about the world, know that some things are true. And for me, I think of faith as really a mature Christian faith as involving all three types. I think that to be mature and to working towards maturity in your faith involves knowing how to be a certain way. It involves knowing how to do certain things, how to engage in hospitality. And if your faith is informed by a Christian tradition and Jesus himself, it involves certain practices that are modeled and patterned after the life and work of Jesus, right? So I think there's a know-how kind of aspect to faith. And I think that involves knowing kind of interpersonal knowledge, right, of knowing other persons, knowing other people in Christian community. And even if we're talking about a personal God, uh, having that kind of analogy there too of interpersonal knowledge. But I think also, if not knowledge, at least believing that certain things are true about the world. And we can't help but believe that certain things are true, whether it's through system one, quick automatic processes or more reflective system two type of processes. I don't think we get to choose what we believe. I think beliefs are just formed in us, pictures of the world that we can't help but think are true, regardless of what that picture looks like. And I think you're right when it comes to, and this is what CSR, I I think has really kind of shone a light on too is that when it comes to the religious mind most of the heavy cognitive lifting is happening at system one yeah. and it's just kind of formed in us and so that's just an interesting result well so that leads me to the question of are there any particular christian ways of seeing the world among options that you think csr maybe adds evidence for and the first one that came to mind is religious pluralism the idea that if so much of this stuff is system one, are we right to judge people of in other countries of other faiths? How much control do they have over sort of how they perceive God given the inputs around them? I think what CSR does help us appreciate, and this is both at the level of cognitive processes and also at the level of cultural evolution and the way that our minds kind of interact as in culture kind of beings. And I'm looking forward to hearing your talk with Justin on that. But I think what CSR does give us is just another way of understanding the universal inclination towards religious belief and experience. Yeah. And I think that it does, I think, help us understand the way in which culture tunes the particular flavor of religion. So people of other religious faiths have the same minds that we all share and are bringing the same cognitive tools to their life and experience that Christians in the West are or wherever they may be, right? So there is kind of that universal backdrop. And I think what CSR does do is it helps us 
flesh out in ways that might not <laughs> suggest moral blameworthiness for why people believe the things that they do. And so I think that is a helpful kind of layer to the discussion. Something, too, that's pointed out is that some people have used this as arguments against kind of theism from CSR, where they've said, well, the vast majority of the beliefs that people have had about gods have been polytheistic. Right. So if, if, if you think that there's a good argument on the basis of having a, a particular arrangement of mental tools in human history for thinking that they give us reliable outputs, maybe the best you could do is support for some kind of polytheism, but you don't get, you get monotheism. Yeah, so you really need to bring in <clears throat> sort of other forms of reason <clears throat> to flesh out your theological system. Yeah. You, you can't rely just on yeah. these mechanisms. But, but I think, but here's something that I think is is interesting to think about that one of the things that our minds seem pretty reliable to produce is the sense that some kind of naturalism is false. Like just this idea that naturalism meaning materialism, you know, being like, all that there is stuff. is nature. There is yeah. no God. No, um, we're very unlikely to start with that kind of a belief. Yeah, uh, right. Or even have it persist. Like it, that takes a lot of cognitive effort and cultural scaffolding. To, if you to want to be a materialist, it. you have to sort of like continually remind yourself that you are one <laughs> with system two. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I think. Yeah. It's, what do you do? You think that there's any a value judgment in that, or any sort of evidentiary judgment, or is that just an interesting finding? Well, it's interesting, at least for people who want to draw straight lines from the cognitive architecture that we have to conclusions about whether there's a God or not. And I think it's hard to draw the line from our cognitive architecture to atheism. It's hard to draw to theism. And one of the questions is, well, how do we know that these faculties would be reliable for the outputs that they're producing? And mm -hmm. I, what I'm kind of suggesting is that, well, one thing they seem pretty reliably tuned for is to suggest that a completely mechanistic naturalism is true. Or they, they seem to, you know, a consequence of what outputs are is that that's false, right? Yeah. So that doesn't mean that it's reliable, but it's just interesting to think about. So Justin's got a book called Born Believers, where he talks about all the science about infants and really young children. And you can take that either way. You can say they're born believers because that's what God intended. Or you can say they're born, born deceivers. Believers. Yeah, they're <laughs> born deceived about God. And it was adaptive in some sense, right? And it's, you know, you really can go either way. I do wonder what you think, if you think this puts the thumb on the scale one way or the other for Christian naturalism, which is uh, its own topic and has its own kind of theological problems, especially mm -hmm. with like... I mean, like a we... Christian materialism? Christian like, materialism, yeah. Christian naturalism. But there's even distinctions here. I don't mean metaphysical naturalism, which says all there is is matter, but that the human person that God loves, that God is, is all material. We, there's no immaterial soul. It's one kind of substance. Yeah. Do you think that this m puts the thumb on the scale either way for that? I don't think so, other than it. what it does do is give you a much more fine-grained set of tools to understand what some people just lump into the workings of a non-physical soul. But that's going to be true more in cognitive science in general and philosophy of mind and materialist accounts of mental processes. This is right. just kind of a specific kind of application of that. Yeah. Well, so that leads... My last couple questions are about sort of ministry applications of this and then how it relates to your own faith. So let's start with applications for Christians in general, for pastors, for teachers, therapists, whatever. I mean, what do you think this stuff shows us in terms of applying it 
to regular people's lives. Yeah. I think it's important for theologians and pastors who teach and who work directly with kind of counseling people through their own experience. I think that understanding cognitive science of religion gives them a better just more tools to understand their own kind of theological perspectives and also gives them the language to understand the experience of people that they are teaching or are working with in pastoral counseling kind of situations. And so I do think that one benefit of CSR is that it should properly cause us to reduce some of the confidence that we have and some of the theological commitments that we have. And I say that that that's a good result because there are theological claims made all the time with a degree of certainty that far outstrips the evidence that people have. And that sometimes hurt people. That And that's that exactly. 100%. And if they're wrong. Well, you know, right. And, and, yeah. Yeah, right. and I think what happens too is that people find out that They've been told things that weren't either well-supported or well-researched, and uh, you kind of feel lied to in a way. And so I think that if you want to cultivate kind of a mature, robust Christian community, you have to be wide open to the best available data that we have at our disposal to understand what's going on. Kind of theological humility. Absolutely. That would lead to, hopefully not losing as many young people when they grow up and start learning the science for themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that right there is one very significant practical application of a science-engaged theology that's informed by kind of our best data. And it's interesting, like the people that I know in the field that I've met in different conferences and contexts who study religion scientifically and may or may not be themselves very religious, in my view, are not particular. you know, there are exceptions, but in general are not hostile to people of faith. And that too, I think is a myth that sometimes gets promoted that just because if someone is studying religion scientifically, they must automatically be hostile to faith. And that's just not true. Right. And so I think that there's a, a really good lesson there. Last question. How has learning and working with this stuff affected your personal faith? Uh, not at all. No, just joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what it's, what it's done is, well, in a couple of ways. So there, uh, I don't know if you're, this would be, mean anything at all to your listeners, but there's a movement in philosophy of religion that was founded in part, primarily, but with other people, by the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga called Reformed Epistemology. Yeah. So explain that for us. All right. So Plantinga is this uh, huge figure in late 20th, early 21st century philosophy, Christian philosopher of, of note, and, you know, made significant contributions to a number of areas of philosophy, including philosophy of religion. And he had this idea, his kind of journey was to process this evidentialist objection to God. And so he was kind of thinking through this idea that, well, we shouldn't believe in God because there's just not sufficient evidence for the existence of God on any kind of normal criteria for evidence. And over the course of you know decades, as planting a thought through, what should we think about this objection if you do believe in God? Is that true? Is it not true? And it occurred to him that most people don't seem to believe in God by a careful kind of weighing of the evidence. Right. But then it occurred to him also that most people believe most things without a real careful kind of weighing of the evidence. Right. And so he thought, if I asked you what you had for breakfast and you said a bagel and 
generally we just take you face value that you're remembering what you had. You're not arguing to that conclusion. You're not weighing kind of a list of claims and inferring that you had a bagel based on the plausibility of all these premises. You just kind of remember. And Plantinga says that's perfectly appropriate. In fact, if I were to listen to you in that response and say, eh, are you sure? Where's your argument, right? You could maybe trot one out, but none of the premises would be any more independently plausible than just you remembering because you're going to have to appeal to some kind of sense, right? And so he says, you know, there's a whole domain of rational belief of, he didn't use the language of system one, but let's just say of system one beliefs that if they're working the way that they should in the environments for which they're attuned, then we're perfectly rational in accepting their outputs. And so Plantinga's uh, approach to religious, the rationality of religious belief was to say, well, what if belief in God was like that? What if belief in God was the product of these system one basic belief forming kind of processes? And if those processes are aimed at truth, aimed at understanding the world accurately, then when they're working the way that they're supposed to, people are perfectly rational in accepting their outputs. So there's, I kind of describe this in two ways. There's um, an empirical component to what he's saying. Like he's making uh, an empirical claim about how it is that people actually form beliefs. And then he's also layering over top of that a philosophical claim about under what conditions beliefs like that can be rational. And the interesting thing is that the empirical part of it, you know, this idea that belief in supernatural is the product of, you know, automatic and quick cognitive processes. Turns out to be true. Turns out to be well supported by the science. Now that doesn't get you reformed epistemology. It doesn't tell us whether or not there is a God or whether these outputs are actually truth aimed and so on. But it is kind of interesting that this belief that Plantinga cooked up from the armchair several decades ago has an empirical component that it seems to be well supported. So that's interesting, but also just get personal here. So in your daily piety, your church attendance, your thinking about passing down the faith to your kids, you know, how does this stuff, either that, so what consequences does that have? And then just, I think, I, I, yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's helped me be less of a jerk and I'm still a jerk, but I may be less of a jerk. I've spent two weeks with you. <laughs> You're not a jerk. <laughs> so I think what it's helped me is be more gracious and charitable to people who have different kinds of religious paths than I do, particularly people who, you know, are more conservative and fundamentalist, right? Like it's helped me, I think, understand you know, some of the cognitive pressures that are there, selection pressures in a way for people who identify, you know, there are lots of, I mentioned earlier that the city in which I live is part of British Columbia Bible Belt. There's lots of fairly large churches. And interesting thing too, is that what cognitive science does is it helps, it gives a layer of understanding kind of church mechanisms and growth. You know, I'm sure you'll talk with Justin about the value of religion in terms of building community culturally, in-group, out-group. Religion is very good at helping identify who's on your team. Yeah, which is both can be good and bad. Oh, uh, 100%. And it's not a surprise that the successful kind of mega churches in part, are really good about boundary markers, right? And who's yeah. in your t- and it gives participants a sense of certainty as to what it means to be on, on the team, right? And I think CSR has helped me maybe be, hopefully, a little less judgy about that kind of experience. It's less judgy to the individuals who experience it, but it also helps clarify certain claims that get made, like, yeah. oh, our church is blessed by God because it's growing. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. is it just that you're exclusively reaching out to middle class white people who are all similar? Because <laughs> yeah. that would also yeah. grow your church. Yeah. No, that, and that's the opposite of the kingdom of God, that's, right? So that, yeah. that's exactly right. So that's a really good application. I think I meant it was it was making me less judgy about people who of go course, to those churches, yeah. right? Because it is understands. Well, yeah. Bit. So so then you're mm-hmm. also. If you recognize the principle that's, that's doing assuming the work, that it's, that's assuming that my way is better, right? So, yeah. like, you know, but we can't I mean, help but think that that's true. It definitely gives us some more data to evaluate claims made by some Christians in some movements to go, oh, you know, actually, I think you're attributing something to God's supernatural intervention that is just kind of natural to human cognition. And that actually goes against the teachings of Jesus. So you want to say, <laughs> you want to say our church is growing, therefore it's good. Yeah. But you also follow <laughs> why do you, Jesus. Why do you hate America, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> but you also follow Jesus who tries to knock down ethnic markers and barriers. And if you look at your church and it's growing, or if you, even better, you go and you look at 10,000 churches and why they're growing and the church growth movement is based on this principle of homogeneity. Well, okay, now we have a conflict because the principle of having a homogeneous church population is contrary to the kingdom of God, Yeah, at least on my reading of it. Yeah. And so that gives you something to work with as you go, well, hey, this works, but mm-hmm. is it good? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, is working the most important thing or is being good the most important yeah. thing? What does success look like? What does success look like yeah. in Christian church? So... All right. Well, Myron, fascinating. And thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, I really appreciate being asked. And it's been good hanging out. Big thanks to Myron, who I think I forgot to say earlier, he's a philosopher at Trinity Western University in British Columbia. That's his credentials. And he uh, does a bunch of work around cognitive science of religion. Um, I've got links in the show notes to When God Talks Back, that T.M. Lerman book we talked about, and Citizen's album Fear, a Spotify link. Thanks to Laura Kondarajian for editing this episode. Again, you can join the Patreon for exclusive episodes and more, patreon.com slash Coke. You can email me about anything. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next week.